Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about Chrissy Teigen, the NFL ASL Bible translation, and we're joined by Kendall Laughlin. You're listening to The Common Good. Everyone, welcome to the Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm, and it is a weird day outside. I was talking with our producer before the show how strange it is that it like rained and then it was sunny and then windy and then rained again, and that was all within a matter of ten minutes. It was a very, very strange very run this yeah. afternoon, but I, I guess that's kind of what we get with the Midwest. You can find us all over the World Wide Web. I'll I'll deal with those later because we got a lot to talk about. What we've often done with this very first segment is just kind of hit some headlines. We don't have any like deep existential thoughts about them necessarily. Maybe we could revisit them. If you'd like us to revisit them, you can send us a message to the Facebook page, but just some things that uh, at least I saw in the news and I'm going to let Brian, you can just choose whichever of those you'd like to tackle first. All right. I want to start with one that I saw today and it's a sad one. I don't, I don't mean to just start as a downer, but um you might have seen this online today. John Legend and his wife, Chrissy Teigen, yeah. uh, very well-known couple. Uh, she tweeted this morning with a picture basically saying with this long explanation that they had lost their child. And it was just heartbreaking to read. Uh, she was pregnant, uh, was bleeding, went to the hospital, and the child did not make it. So she had a miscarriage. And uh, having gone through stuff like that before, A, I felt terrible for her. But then there was this weird... Uh, like this weird Twitter, I don't know if you saw this back and forth, not obviously with her, but with people going, how could she share that on Twitter? Why do people share this kind of stuff on Twitter? And you're just like, oh man, is that who we are now? Like we're going to take people's tragedies and argue about them over Twitter. It seemed really odd. I don't know if you saw that or maybe it was just on my timeline, but people arguing over whether or not it was appropriate for her to share this. And you want to be like, well, maybe she was just looking for some, uh, so maybe this was her way of coping or looking or people being able to reach out to her. Such a weird world we live in with Twitter, man, but really felt heartbroken for them. That is just such a yeah, a sad, gosh. sad story. And and I don't know. I wanted to mention the Twitter thing because yet again, I think social media can be so destructive sometimes. And this was another example where people were questioning her motives and questioning why and having these debates over something where you're just like, just let them grieve if that's how they want to grieve publicly. I'll, I'll just I'll just say, I'll way. say this then for me, like you're you're certainly um, free to feel that way. Just keep it to yourself right now. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, that's what I mean. Exactly. Yeah. And it's, you don't uh, need it was to, weird. to like go after her on Twitter right now. I don't know. I mean, it was weird. I know plenty yeah. of people would say like, well, she's put herself in that position because she's a celebrity. Stop, 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 stop. They just lost their just stop. So just the main or, part of that story is just the the sadness. The, that's heartbreaking. Yeah. Uh, that is just a heartbreaking story. So prayers go out to them for sure. Yeah, absolutely. This one, I don't have a lot to say, but it's uh, some local Chicago news. And I don't know if you have a feeling about it. Bringing the Chris Kingle market home for the holidays. Chicago's beloved holiday tradition goes virtual this year. Did you see this? Uh, no, I only saw it now. I'm going to say that everyone who's ever been to the Chris Kindle, Kindle market loves it. Am I going to surprise you here? Uh, the answer to this is no. I've never been to it. You've I've never, never been to it Chicago. at all? Ever. Ever. Oh, this actually makes a lot of sense because had you been, you probably would have known what mold cider was. Good point from yesterday's show. But yeah, I do know every it's so funny because every year you see pictures on Facebook, people going how much fun it is. And my wife and I was go, man, we should go to that some one of these years. And then the next year comes and we go, we should go to that one of the years. So maybe this year we'll go virtual since that's how it is. It'll at least be earlier, easier for us to get to. Has she never gone? No, neither of us. Neither of us have ever gone. Oh, interesting. I'm learning so much about the Froms today. All right. So we uh, 
You got some sports news since you're the self-proclaimed sports guy. Why don't I you uh, fill us in? Uh, uh, follow up to the story we did yesterday. Uh, the Tennessee Titans in the NFL have had a bit of a COVID outbreak. Um, and now their game with the Steelers this weekend, which was supposed to be moved from Sunday to either Monday or Tuesday, is going to be moved to later in the season. So what makes this a big deal is this is the first uh, game postponement in the NFL for this year. So Major League Baseball had that problem early on, you might remember, uh, but basketball and hockey didn't because they went into the bubbles. Uh, this is the first actual game in the NFL uh, not to get canceled, but to get postponed due to COVID. So it's just a reminder again, uh, these things are going to happen with football as as we want sports to be back. And bigger reminder is, hey, this virus is still here. Like mm-hmm. even though we're watching sports, I watched a basketball last night and the baseball playoffs and reading this, the, the virus is still here. And every now and then stories like this, if you need a reminder, reminds us of that. So uh, just postpone for now. Hopefully it doesn't turn into a bigger deal for this team, specifically the Titans. Uh, but yeah, kind of a big deal in the world of sports with a football game getting postponed here. Yeah, okay. So those those first three were kind of sad, at least more on the discouraging side. These <laughs> last two aren't going to be uh, discouraging at all. They're going to be quite incredible. I actually had no idea about this first one. Uh, out of Christianity Today, sign language Bible complete after 39 years. Translation was led by deaf people trained in the biblical languages. Did you have any sense that any of this was going on? Absolutely not. In fact, I only saw this today on Christianity Today. And uh, it's an unbelievable project that took forever, 39 years. But I had no idea. To answer your question, I had no idea that this was even a thing going on. I, I don't know why we didn't know, because you and I, uh, as pastors— a lot of our job is the Bible. Like, I I don't know. There right. actually might be a whole other segment here sometime in the future because I was a little convicted. I was very grateful when I was at Poplar Creek to have a number of people who were very passionate about ASL that, like, educated me about things oh. in that community that I had I just had no idea about at all. And I, I never would have, I don't think, had it not been for them. But I was the same thing. Saw this today and thought, how have I not heard of this? Like, my so much of my life is in the Bible, is teaching the yeah. Bible and reading the Bible and trying to exegete the Bible and understand the Bible. And how have I not, I don't know. It was, a, that was a pretty humbling thing for me. And I imagine maybe other people listening are as surprised as we are. May, maybe they're not, but certainly for me, it was one of those things like, oh, this is a perfect example of something like, it looks like 3.5 million deaf people. Um, I don't know if that's globally or if that, no, I guess that would be in the United States. That's that's a massive demographic of people in our churches uh, that yeah, often I think are, you know, unfortunately overlooked or not considered or either way. This seems like a big victory and something that I'm interested in learning more about because I just I don't know all that much. This last one here probably could have fit in our uh, Some Good News Network, but I, yeah. I saw it and I was like, we just got to talk about it. I'm going to read the headline and I'll let you kind of give us a 30,000 foot. Uh, Atlanta Church turns Fellowship Hall into COVID-safe learning center for children. I love I love the story. Just give us a brief taste. Yeah, Smoke Rise. Ba- what a cool name, Smoke Rise Baptist Church. Yes. Uh, they took two weeks to organize and open a space for more than two dozen public school children to participate in virtual learning while their parents are at work. And so that goes into exactly how they did this. But at the very least, uh, with remote learning. There are many people in our in our country whose 
you know, two incomes. They parents can't take off of work and you start to go, what are the kids going to do if mom or dad can't stay home? And so this church said, you know what, we're going to do something about this. We're going to allow kids to come to our church and we're going to keep it safe and all sorts of different things. Uh, They had to buy computers and kind of get up the speed about Zoom and everything. But now these kids who kind of would have been in trouble because their parents have to work uh, are able to come to the church and do this. It's yet another example. And one of the things I love about the show is you and I get to see these examples. It's yet another example of a church doing just a beautiful thing for their community. Yeah, arguably uh, a church coming together to do something for the common good. Yes. Which brings me to a bit of a segue because coming up next, uh, we have Kendall Laughlin Jr. who will be joining us to talk not only about an article they wrote for the Christian Post. It's an open letter to Governor Newsom. Let's work together with churches for the common good. But he is also the author of a book called The Identity Journey. He's going to stick around with us for not one, but Two segments that's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. Thrilled to have on the phone for two segments, leader and author Kendall Laughlin. Welcome to the show, sir. Thanks for having me. Hey, it's our pleasure. Would, would you just take a minute or two and introduce yourself however you see fit to our audience? Of course. Yeah, my name's Kendall, and I'm out in San Diego, California. I'm out there with my family, my children, a dog named Pepper, a cat named Chicken. So it's a full household. And I serve as part of our leadership of our local church out here, All People's Church. And I'm part of a family of churches called the Antioch Movement throughout the United States. And just passionate about equipping people and helping them grow in all that God's called them to do. Love it. There's a story there about a cat named Chicken and a dog that that we'll get to hopefully some other time. Uh, and also, yeah, that's that's different topic. Yeah, and our jealousy is high here in Chicago when you say San Diego, I'm sure. But hey, what we wanted to talk about a couple different things. But one, you wrote an, uh, a really interesting. We saw an article at the Christian Post, uh, an open letter to Governor Newsom out there in California about COVID and churches working together. Before diving into that, I'm just curious. Could you paint a picture for us here in the Chicago land? Uh, how have things been going for churches out in California? We hear a lot about John MacArthur and other stuff. Could you paint a picture about COVID and all that's going on in California with churches? Great question. And I do know, um, I'm originally from Texas. I've been in San Diego for 12 years and was part of planting this church in San Diego from Texas. And so what I know is the rest of the country hears news from California and they are like, what is going on out there? (laughs) I know it can be very sensational. And here is what I would want to know people around the United States to know. Um, God is moving in California. You know, there was there was a guy that wrote a book, God, Gold, and Glory, and it was about all of the revivals that have come to the Christian church in the last 150 years and tracing their origins to different spiritual movements and leaders in California. So there's a special grace on Southern California specifically, um, and there's also incredible brokenness. I mean, it's, it's easy to see when you see the political situation, when you see the entertainment industry, when you see different economic policies and things that are going on, and it, it breaks our heart when God's law isn't honored. But the Bible says where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And we are seeing the kingdom advance in amazing ways in this hour. So it's, it's been incredibly challenging. Um, it's an incredibly divisive time. Um, San Diego has multiple uh, different uh, people of different beliefs in the international city. We have people all over the world. There's a large military community. So there's a lot of opinions. And in our church, the very multi-ethnic church, 
we have the whole spectrum of people that believe all kinds of different things about COVID and the presidency and the state of our world. But when the church is able to unify, God is able to do amazing things. And we're truly seeing that in San Diego in amazing ways. That's really cool, man. I, I don't know if we mentioned this, but Brian and I are actually both pastors first, and then we do this sort of, you know, in the free time that we probably don't actually have. But one of the questions that he and I have tackled a lot in the last year and a half of this show really is the role of the Christ follower as it pertains to politics and civic engagement. And we've certainly gotten some feedback from people, you know, because of articles we've shared or things we've said on air. I'd love to know, why do you feel that civic engagement is important for Christ followers? Well, that's a great question. And uh, the blessing that we have is that we are in the United States of America. So every country has its own, uh, you know, civic uh, setup. And in our country, the, uh, the setup is based on an, an educated and engaged electorate. And so because that is how our society is created as believers, it's our responsibility to be engaged in the issues of our day. And that doesn't mean that we have to always come out in support of a certain political party. That doesn't mean that every believer has to believe the same thing as me, but it just goes back to Genesis one, where God gave Adam and Eve the earth. And he said, be fruitful, multiply and take dominion. And in, in our world today, that means make disciples. And so every way we can make disciples, whether it's our workplace or education or um, through Christians working and involved and being prayerful about government, I think is a good thing. And we mentioned earlier that you wrote a letter to Governor Newsom in California. I'm wondering uh, why you wrote that letter and maybe share with our our audience, what was the gist of that letter? Yes. Thanks for asking. I wrote that letter because I felt like God told me to, you know, I I, um, don't necessarily have a political bone to pick. Um, There's not some particular outcome. I even am hoping from the letter. But just in prayer one day, um, I, I really felt God initiated with me just in my morning time of prayer to, to write a letter like this. And, you know, as I wrote it and had some friends look at it, um, I, what was impacting to me is I did that prayerfully and also through study the scripture with wise counsel of others is I felt like just a tone needed to be shared that I'm not hearing in our society today. And that tone is we need to work together for the common good. Even if we have a different set of beliefs, I think that we can recognize as a church, the government has a very important role in our society. And I think the government can recognize the church has a hugely essential role to us having a healthy America and for me, a healthy state of California. That's really good. You probably picked up on the fact that the name of our show is The Common Good. And <laughs> one of the things we picked up. I know, up, isn't that crazy? Oh, I love it. And it's, you know, our ears are kind of tuned to it now anytime we hear or see it. But uh, it actually came from uh, a guy here locally, Scott Jathani, who talked about the need for even possibly rebranding evangelicalism as Christians for the Common Good. And in reading your article, I think you do a good job of talking about why working together, regardless of our faith backgrounds or our politics, why working for the common good is really significant, maybe more now than ever. Could you speak a little bit more to that idea of the common good and, and why it's so significant? Yes. So, you know, one historian said this, there was not an idea in the American Revolution that did not come from the pulpits of the American colonies. And so from the very beginning of our society, 
the idea of um, of God's laws, God's wisdom, you know, has been seeded in, you know, into the very fabric even of our constitution. But we've lost that over time. And I think to revisit some of the ways that the government and the church um, partner together, not not to be integrated. I know there's a separation of church and state, but partner together for everyone's benefit. So what I was trying to do is articulate, for example, churches in neighborhoods are proven to decrease crime rates. Um, churches in neighborhoods are proven to increase property value. Um, an economic congregation pumps millions of dollars into its community each year due to volunteer hours, due to spending, due to benevolence. And, um, you know, I think when we look at our society today, sometimes we're forgetting the incredible impact that communities of faith have on the social fabric of our lives. That's really good. That other voice you're hearing, by the way, is Kendall Laughlin. He's going to stick around for one more segment to not only talk about this article that he wrote for the Christian Post, but also his book, The Identity Journey. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm, and uh, we're absolutely thrilled to have for a second segment, Kendall Laughlin, who wrote an article for Christian Post. He's also the author of the book, The Identity Journey. And we've been talking a bit about civic engagement and the role of the church. And one of the things, Kendall, that we've talked about a good deal on the show, and Brian and I, I mean, even our churches are functioning a bit different in this regard, but I'd love for you to speak to the significance of the gathered people, the, the ecclesia, why, why is actually the physical embodied gathering of Christians like central or at least significant to Christian identity? Great question. You know, our church here in San Diego, um, here at the beginning of 2020, it just felt like we were getting some major momentum again, you know, and then COVID hits, right? And it's like, what do you do? And there was a period of time that I think it was very important for us to to go online and really um, press pause. And, you know, we developed some online ministry out of that. You can check that out at allpeoples.tv if you want to see what we're doing online. But that was some good innovation for us. And, you know, we had an online Easter and it was really a, a great experience. But eventually, you know, we get to a point where we're starting to learn a little more about this virus. And rather than just waiting for COVID to end, which who knows how long really this is going to go on. It's time for us to pick up the baton again, because biblically the church has always been scattered and gathered. And so for a period of time, of course, it's appropriate to, to take a break if, if needed for a situation like we've been in. But Hebrews 10 25 says this, don't give a meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. And I just want to hone in on that word habit gathering as a community of faith is such an important habit. You know, Ovid, the Greek philosopher, uh, said this, nothing is more important than habit because our habits really do shape us. And so those first Sundays where we were gathered at a church, as a church in July, with a big tent outside, you know, people are wearing masks, we're doing it socially distanced. But even in the midst of that, I mean, people just coming and cratering with the loneliness that they've been experiencing. Um, People dealing with uh, dealing with a divorce or a death in their family during this time, so desperate for prayer. People coming to Christ that are coming to church on drug trips. They're giving their life to Jesus, falling down on their knees after a service. And what we're seeing is it is so important for churches to be scattered. And Christians do need to be strong enough during a time like this, not to rely constantly on the input of you know all the different things that we feel we need. 
But there's something that happens when Christians gather in the name of Jesus Christ. He sends his presence in a unique way. And we need that, and the world needs that. So we need to be in the habit of meeting together. Mm. Uh, as we said, you wrote a book called The Identity Journey, a 31-day spiritual journey to discover your identity in Christ. Uh came out uh, a year, year and a half ago or so. I, I'd love to know, uh, not only it's kind of a devotional, so tell me a little bit about the book, but also why do you think it's so important, this uh, this topic of our identity in Christ? Well, thanks for asking me about it. Yeah, th- it has been, uh, no pun intended, a little bit of a journey to, to share about the identity journey <laughs> as a book. And... You know, um, I wrote that book because when I was 31, I'm 37 now, I had a very specific encounter with God where he invited me uh, to uh, experience out of the Bible 31 promises for my life. And as I looked, they were all in the book of Ephesians, and there were promises concerning my identity in Christ. And I spent about five years studying these 31 promises in the book of Ephesians and actually declaring them over my life. You know, the Bible says life and death are in the power of the tongue. And as I did that, I began to experience a personal transformation. And um, I started to preach on it and just share as a pastor. And I kept having people come to me and say, you've got to write a book about this. And so I meet a friend for pizza out here in San Diego. And we sit down and he says, well, when are you starting the book? And I had an accountability partner. <laughs> so we, we did it. We wrote this book. And it's a 31-day journey where every day a different aspect of your identity of Christ is reviewed and you're you're prayerfully expressing that identity in Christ and saying that over your life. And it's brought a lot of transformation to people. It's been encouraging. That's really great, man. Because That's actually a topic that Brian and I talk about a fair deal on the show as well. And I don't know that it's sometimes maybe we drill down to that being the core of the issue more often than we should. But it's certainly something that he and I, when we look at the news and when we look at the divide on our country and look at chaos and look at vitriol outline. Like for us, maybe that's a muscle memory for us or something, but we, we do often come back to, I mean, if we, if we understood Christ followers, if we understood our identity in Christ, that that's not just something, it's not a nice, just truism that we sort of like hold on to intellectually. It actually like changes the way that we live. I would love, and I didn't really prep you for this, but I'd love to know, do you see any correlation to what you write in the book to what you sort of call people to in the article regarding civic engagement? It is, knowing our identity in Christ linked to the type of lives that we lead. Wow. You're really connecting to some dots for me here. Um, just based on the work that you've done. <laughs> yes. We're in a day where our, our political identity is fracturing. Um, Christians aren't, aren't able just to say, Hey, I'm this or I'm that with full integrity, right? There's just, there's no party. There's no candidate that fully expresses the kingdom of God. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't be engaged. Like we talked about that in our previous interview, right? We, we sometimes, as followers of Christ, have that calling. Right. My calling is to equip people regarding their spiritual identities. That's what I'm doing. And other people may have different callings. But I do think because our political identity is fractured, I think because it has been harder to gather corporately. And I think because really this issue of identity is so important right now, conversations on gender and race, we need to know who we are in Christ so we can have all those conversations in a healthy way. So I think once you understand your identity in Christ, it's foundational and we can start to build healthy conversations and healthy relationships on top of that. But we've all been in conversations where we're trying to build a bridge with someone and then you hit that one issue, you hit that one button and it's a no-go. You can't go there. And typically there's pain and someone's identity on that issue. And I want to be someone that God can 
always speak to me about anything in my life and I can build bridges with people in our culture and still know who I am. That's great, man. Oh, that's awesome. Kendall, we're thrilled that you've joined us. With like the last minute and a half, two minutes that we have, we always like to let pastors especially say, uh, you know, there's people po- for the political landscape, COVID, who are just discouraged out there. So could you as a pastor just speak a word of encouragement, a word of hope uh, to people who might be listening and feeling really discouraged right now? Absolutely. Well, I would say, first of all, just just a word to pastors. If any pastors listen to this show, now is your time. Uh, our country needs you more than ever. Just rise up, preach the word of God boldly. And for all of us, you know, I would just reflect on the promise of Job chapter 42. When Job prayed for his friends, who didn't treat him that well, by the way, when Job prayed for his <laughs> friends, it says the Bible says that he, the Lord restored to him double for all of his challenges. And, mm-hmm. you know, I believe that this is a great season of restoration, but it's related to this idea of bridge building and praying for people and even connecting with those that are different than us. And man, the government has such an important role in our lives. I pray for my government officials here in California, even that have different beliefs than me. We, we're all in this together right now, but there's something about the people of God rising up and blessing in this season. And I believe as we do that, we will experience the personal restoration that we that's really good, man. Thank you so much for sharing all that. Real quickly, as we wrap up, where can people go to learn more about the book or the church or the movement or any of that? Hit us with any websites or email addresses you want to. Yeah, you can uh, hit us online, allpeoples.global. That is our global church planning movement. All People's Church part of the Antioch family of churches. And uh, so blessed to be a part of that. My personal website is kaljr.com. And that's where you can get the link to my book or on Amazon. That's great, man. That other voice you're hearing, by the way, is Kendall Laughlin, who's joined us for a couple of segments talking about his article in church and COVID. If you're just joining us live, I encourage you to go back and listen via the podcast. Kendall, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us thank today, you. brother. Thanks for the time. God bless you and your ministry. You Dude, as well. Appreciate it. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope- Everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. Happy Fire Pup Day, Brian. Fire Pup? I don't know what that is. I mean, I'm assuming Type it's, of dog. A, it's a superhero dog that can also light itself on fire. <laughs> it spits fire like a dragon. No, I think a fire pup maybe is like a, a, yeah, fire like a dog like at, a, like at a fire station. Like a firehouse? Yeah, I would guess so. That was my guess. I don't think I've ever actually heard the, uh, the phrase fire pup. It's also, uh-huh. I'm like embarrassed to admit this. It's Black History Month in the UK. I didn't realize oh. that like different countries chose different months, probably for very different reasons. That makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I think we're learning that, especially as you do these days. It'd be like Independence Day in this place and Black. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I know. Yeah. All right. So I don't know if you're an Andy Crouch fan or not. Uh, I think he's got a ton of good things to say. Uh, he wrote an article called Why Ethical Work is Not Enough. If you, if you don't follow uh, like what he does with praxis or some of his other writing um highly highly encouraged i think i just think he's one of those voices right now that's kind of he's cutting through the noise better than most and this originally appeared in common good magazine so that's a bit of a common theme today i wonder do we get like royalties for every time we we say the common good on our own show yeah, we do not, but I feel like somebody should get to work on that. Okay, I'll, I'll uh, while you read, I'll Google it. Why don't you? Uh, <laughs> why don't you get us into this article a little bit? 
Yeah, let me jump down. The beginning of the article, he's talking about going to the family doctor and the mechanics and all of this stuff. And he says, we want the same thing from used car dealers as from mechanics and family doctors. We want them to be honest with us, even if telling us the truth won't benefit them. That is the baseline of ethics. And it's certainly something you'd hope every Christian would embody, no matter what their jobs. But car dealers, mechanics, and doctors are part of a different system. And experience has taught us that some of these systems work better than others. They run a gamut from cooperative environments like the doctor's office to corrupt ones. Uh, and there's middle grounds you could label caveat emptor or buyer beware, whereas mm -hmm. with mechanics, many actors are ethical, but you still do well to watch your wallet. Uh, Andy Crowd says there is actually little cost to behaving ethically in cooperative systems. In caveat emptor and corrupt systems, on the other hand, Ethical behavior can be a significant sacrifice. The honest mechanic or used car dealer may lose out on profits that a competitor would gladly pocket. And an American used car lot is hardly the most corrupt system in the world. Uh, in fact, corrupt systems like human trafficking, it is impossible to act ethically at all while remaining inside the system. This suggests that we need to raise the bar for our Christian callings. Very often, the church has taught its members that their main Christian responsibility at work is to act ethically. But what if we are not in the world just to maintain ethical systems, but mm. to repair systems that have become corrupt or at least places where we need to beware? To think this way is to shift from individual choices to systemic responsibility. And it's also to shift from thinking ethically to thinking redemptively. Redemptive thinking goes beyond honest individuals to the kinds of actions that actually restore trust in whole systems. What would it look like if Christians were committed to living redemptively, actively moving into systems that are bywords for corruption and caveat emptor and changing the whole game? What if you could expect your next visit to a used car lot to be as good for you as a visit to the doctor? Once you start looking at the world redemptively rather than just ethically, you realize how far we've fallen. But you also set a new standard for the flourishing we're meant to pursue, a world in which even when we are vulnerable, we don't have to be we don't have to beware. I, I think that's fascinating. And uh, because we all know you go to a used car lot or you go to a mechanic that you don't necessarily know or trust, you're up there going, how am I going to get ripped off today? Like, what are they going to do to me? And he's saying, and there's so much to what he's saying, but he's saying at the very least, we as Christians, even beyond ethically, we need to think redemptively towards systems. And then you start to play this out politically, racially, and all sorts of other ways. And I think what Andy Crouch is getting at here uh, has a lot of depth and importance for the church, for sure. Yeah, it's a, it's a tall order. And one, I could hear someone listening to that thinking, well, yeah, sure, that's what we should be aiming at. But that sounds exhausting, or that no, sounds no. like a lot of work, which... I think you would be right to feel that way. You know, it's some of what I've said about even with regards to political conversations, like to not just engage, but elevate. I think he's taking it a step further. I actually like his language even better because we do sort of and there's a part of us that we should, you know, when someone behaves ethically, you should applaud that. You should celebrate that. But part of what I think he's doing, which is so important, is saying don't stop there. Don't just stop with ethical behavior. And I think we see this play out in a number of arenas where a lot of people would say. I, I'm not mm, – do I want to go there? Let's go there. I'm not racist because I've never screamed the racist slur out of my car. Like, okay, but that doesn't mean that there aren't like systems that maybe we're a part of that we've contributed to even unknowingly that have perpetuated some level of 
exploitation or bigotry, any of those things, you know, like to just simply say, this is part of what I find the, the one of the issues with highly individualized silo Christianity is because it does exactly what he outlines here. It, it only looks to me and mine. Like as long as right. I feel okay about my behavior, that's the end of the discussion, I guess. And while that's part of it, I'm not, I'm not throwing out the baby with the bathwater. You, you do obviously, you know, I've seen a lot of memes lately about like, Hey, it has to start first with my heart. You're like, yeah, but first is maybe the operative word there. Like the prayer that, you know, that David prays, like creating me a clean heart, but also lead me in the way everlasting. There's a, there's a, an action then that changes as a result that doesn't just affect yeah. my individual behavior, but it also changes the ways that I look at systems and structures and to move from ethical behavior to redemptive behavior, or maybe we could say restorative behavior, I think is really important. And the kind of call and conversation that I would love to see uh, more Christians engaging in. Yeah, I think that's a great point because take his analogy or his example of the used car salesman, just uh, just because you believe that, that that used car salesman is, he might be acting ethically. He's still part of that system where most people expect used car salesmen to be dirty and to just be <laughs> unethical. And and so to work in, uh, what does it mean to redeem the whole system? I do think when, when you talk, like, let's say, again, something we've talked a lot about, this whole concept of systemic racism. I was just having a talk with someone the other day hmm. where uh, the conversation was, I applaud you that you can tell me all the ways that you're not racist. That's awesome. I want to applaud that in you as an individual. That doesn't mean that there's not a problem with the entire system, that you can't be a part of helping the solution and and raising up. And I do think, I, I think you make a valid point to say so much of what we talk about in Christianity is um, individualized. It's me. It's how I act. It's my church. It's all this stuff that we have a hard time looking bigger. But I do think as the church has an opportunity or, or has the ability to look bigger, it can begin to be a redemptive um, agent within our culture and within society. And but like you said, that's a it's a difficult task. It's a high bar that sounds tiring, uh, right. but it is a, it is a worthy one to, uh, to to kind of undertake for sure. Yeah. And I think how we undertake it probably is where a lot of us start talking over each other, because my guess is in my most hopeful days. Most Christians want to work redemptively. They want yeah. to work restoratively. They're they're not actually just interested in sort of me and mine mentality. And part of why I think right now it's all the more important for us to to have these faithful discussions in a way that honors each other is because I do think, and maybe I'm naive, man, I do think that at its core is what a lot of us are really hoping for. We just are diametrically opposed with regards to methodology and how we actually get there. And I just think sometimes, I don't know, it feels like, it feels like we're yelling at each other and like, Oh, we want the same things. Like, can we please step back and take a breath for a second? Because ultimately I think what we're pointing at is, uh, is maybe just maybe more similar than we realize. Yeah. As always, that article is on our Facebook page. We would love to know what you think. Leave a comment, shoot us a message. And uh, we welcome any of that with that. First hour is in the books, but stick around because we got a number of things we're tackling here in the second hour here in the Common Good on AM 1160. Hope you like. Coming up this hour, we're talking masks, we're talking guns, we're talking Amy Coney Barrett, and 10 ways to overcome spiritual wariness. You're listening to the Common Good. 
everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. And I think I just said weariness funny, didn't I? Yeah, did you? I didn't pick up on it being funny. It's kind of like wariness. I like <laughs> wariness. You got some, yeah, some kind of real, it's not quite Southern, some kind of, you ever just, I mean, we do this show five days a week. There's bound to be opportunities for us to just say stuff weird yes. that I, it's not like so egregious that it would like stop you in your tracks. But I've certainly gone back and listened to shows and thought I did not yeah. say that word correctly at all. Yes. That uh, happens more often than I'd like to admit. <laughs> I have moments uh, where I go back and listen and I go, oh, that was nice to do 30 seconds of just nothing that made sense right there on my part. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, people right now are applauding. They're like, yeah, we feel the same yeah. way. We totally it's get it. It's actually your best radio. <laughs> oh, gosh. Lord help us. A couple of particulars real quickly. Facebook, the Common Good Radio Show. If you wouldn't mind, you can leave comments on articles. You can shoot us a private message if you have ideas for future shows. And we're podcasted. It's so easy to subscribe, rate, and review, and then hit that share button and share it with a friend. And any of that, any of that interaction is really, really appreciated. Super grateful for all of you who have already done that. I, I would not have anticipated doing this article. No. I'm going to, I'm just going to get that out. It's a, it's maybe a risk, maybe risk is too strong a word. It's from religion news. And uh, the headline reads why namaste has become the perfect pandemic greeting. I remember, you know, I talk a fair deal about my time in India and that was yeah. really, really transformative for me and learning about, you know, how they interpreted the word namaste. And the way I was taught was that it means something like I recognize the Holy one in you mm. Uh, which was news to me then, you know, I just thought it was like a greeting. I thought it was just Hindi for, Hey, or what's up. It's actually, it's actually much deeper than that. But the, the angle that this article is going to take is I thought a little interesting. So why don't you get us into it? And then, uh, and then we'll, we'll, we'll debate. Yeah. It says hands over the heart in a prayer pose, a little bow of the head, a gesture of respect and acknowledgement of our shared com- uh, humanity and no touching. As people the world over are choosing to ditch the handshakes and hugs for fear of contracting the coronavirus, namaste is becoming the perfect pandemic greeting. As a scholar who's, listen to this scholar, research focuses on the ethics of communication. And as a yoga Mm. teacher, I'm interested in how people use rituals and rhetoric to affirm the interconnectedness with one another and with the world. Namaste Mm. is one such ritual. Originally, so you got this pretty right, a Sanskrit word, namaste, is composed of two parts. Namas means bend to or bow to or honor to, and te means to you. So namaste means I bow to you. This meaning is often reinforced with a small uh, bow of the head. In Hindi, uh, in a number of other languages, uh, namaste is basically a respectful way to say hello and also goodbye. It's also adopted into the English language. Uh, many words, when borrowed, keep their spelling but acquire new meanings. This is the case with namastes. It's shifted from I bow to you to I bow to the divine in you. Uh, and so for many American yoga teachers, uh, namaste means something like the divine light in me bows to the divine light within you and so on and so forth. I'd never heard of namaste uh, until my my daughter and I took yoga classes together. And then I was like, well, what are we doing? <laughs> What's this word? I don't uh-huh. know. Uh, it was your reaction that visceral? Like, oh not. God! Oh, oh no! <laughs> but you know, being from a you know a good evangelical church background, I already felt a little guilty being in the yoga studio. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. sure, sure. I find this to be interesting, man, because it, the the religion news article here is very much like uh, what does Namaste mean? But I think the beginning of it is even fascinating. That how are we going to greet each other going forward here, right? Like, is the handshake gone forever? Is the high five gone forever? Is the hug? I know they're not completely gone, but for the majority of people, is there going to come a day where you feel comfortable 
uh, you know, at church, giving someone a hug, even shaking their hands? Or is this kind of uh, greeting where where there's no physical contact? Is this our future? And then it, it gets really interesting about what namaste means and what the greeting actually mm-hmm. is. But I even think at its core level, just even giving thought to, man, how, you know, a year from now, three years from now, when I'm in the church lobby or I'm out and about and I see a friend, uh, how are we even going to greet each other? I, the day of the elbow bump, I think, is going to go away, right? And so uh, this kind of article about, hey, this might be one way, I think is interesting. And then the background of what it actually means, I think, is also fascinating for sure. Well, and there's some disagreement on, you know, what the if the modern meeting or interpretation is is true to its original intent, which is, you know, the nature of language is why this stuff interests me so endlessly. But this is the way he ends it. He says, what matters most, I believe, is the intention behind the word namaste. When you bow to another, the question to consider is this. Do you truly recognize them as a fellow human being worthy of dignity, bonded in shared suffering and shared capacity for transcendence? I bet a lot of people were with me until I said the word transcendence and you know, we can talk about that a different time. This recognition of our interconnectedness is what Namaste is all about and exactly what we need during the pandemic, which you touched on some of the parts that I wanted to tackle a little bit, because I do think, you know, a number of people won't be shaking hands or hugging for for quite some time. But e- even a year ago, uh, some of those rituals still probably lacked some of like what something like Namaste actually brings to the table because a handshake, you know, we had a guy, we had a guy that. He would shake your hand and his like go to is you good. I'm like, that's not it's not rude, but it's not. It's also not that uh, cordial or I don't know what it is. It's, you know, you good. Like but that always struck me as strange, uh, especially when it came to greeting someone you didn't really know. Now, if Brian Fromm walked around on Sunday and started greeting people with a bow saying namaste, people would probably freak out a little bit. For but sure. the reason I bring all this up is not because I'm proposing this is like a way forward. I, ju- I do think it is interesting, though, that a word like that, that would be very normal in some cultures, might feel stranger to some people in ours, uh, at least depending on your background. The notion of a greeting, recognizing what Brian Fromm and I have often called the Imago Dei in someone else, we don't really have anything like that. Yeah. And I think in this like digital Zoom reality where we are also experiencing grief to varying degrees, whether that's a collective existential grief or very directly loss of a loved one or a job or dreams for the future or dreams for the present. Even we don't have anything like that in our, at least for me, I, maybe people are listening thinking like, Oh, my family, we actually have a custom or we have a word, but for the vast majority of people that I interact with most regularly, we have, Hey, yeah. Or what's up? Or maybe how are you? But this like notion of like beginning an interaction with, you know what, regardless of what we talk about, I recognize the sacred God-given dignity yeah. that's in you already, regardless of where this conversation goes or how much we agree or disagree. There's something about that that I found really intriguing. I do too. So do you think you even uh, mentioned this at the beginning, like, oh, I might get some pushback on this. Is the pushback simply its origins? Is is it for the person yeah. who's listening, the, the pushback is where this word comes from? Is that where you're, uh, what you're thinking? I think so. Probably in the same way that you mentioned that it really caught you off guard when you were, you know, doing yoga. Exactly. Like, Whoa, don't bring that hocus pocus into this. Like it's not, you know, it's it it has really helped me having friends who were born and raised in India yeah. and like explain what it meant to them. Christian friends who are like, oh, I still say it because it's a deeply important part of my culture and tradition. I'm like, oh, 
Yeah, those can both coexist. Of course yeah. they can, you know. Yeah. But yeah, I could, I could see people pushing back for, you know, at the very least, just for reasons of discomfort. Yeah, I think that's fair. But I do think you make a great point that having a greeting uh, that, you know, that that has some kind of uh, acknowledgement of who you are to me and how I view you beyond the bro hug. I miss the bro hug, but, you know, beyond, but like <laughs> that looking each other in the eye and going, hey, I value you. Uh, not only do I value, I recognize the value in you, uh, I think right. is great. I think that's great. I didn't know that's what it meant, to be honest with you, until I read the article. Um, so I think it's fa- it's pretty fascinating. And it is interesting, again, as we said, what's our new normal going to be anyway when it comes to greetings? But something like this, I do think, raises the bar for that. Well, and even like what you just said, and this isn't, I'm not like full on grieving it, but the very fact that it would be strange for either of us to begin a coffee conversation by saying, I recognize the sacred dignity in you. Yes. Like the person would be so weirded out. I'm out. <laughs> and honestly, that's what I'm saying. Like this guy's not like it. There's a part of me that honestly grieves like, oh, I wish that was like more. Mm, just acceptable, I guess, to do, to like begin. I, I just wonder how would our conversations change if we began with that posture, even if it seemed really obvious, just like, hey, I recognize this in you, regardless of where this conversation goes. And I thought, eh, that's an interesting way to start an hour, not yeah. necessarily, you know, headline news, breaking news. But uh, as always, we'd love to know what you think. This, uh, If this article here didn't get us in trouble, the next one might. <laughs> Why not? This is from Shane Claiborne. The headline reads, The Strange Theology That Rejects Masks But Embraces Guns. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey! Hi, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. So glad that you are still with us. There's a little bit of me that's like, man, way to, way to tough it out. Way to, way to stick with us. There's definitely been shows where like, I felt real strongly about stuff we said at the end of the show. Mm-hmm. And I thought, man, it's a bummer because... We had some real stinkers earlier in the show <laughs> <laughs> that people maybe didn't power through to get to the, you know, the nugget there at the end. But I don't know. Every every day is a little different. And we've had Shane Claiborne on the show before. Were you were you in studio for that or oh, were I you was. out? No, I was there. I was there. That was awesome. What, well, yeah. What do you remember of that interview? Because I some people might be surprised, actually, that you thought that was awesome. I don't know why. But, yeah, what do you, do you remember anything of it? So I remember that it, it centered around the death penalty, which I was really interested to talk to him about. But he was also remember he was traveling the country with somebody else and they were collecting guns and turning them into into uh, gardening utensils. Remember that? Like, I went. I went. Oh, you yeah. did. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Shane Claiborne, uh, for better or for worse, he uh, he will challenge you. There's people right yeah. now who probably at the name Shane Claiborne are like, I don't want to hear this. But he, he certainly loves Jesus, and uh, he challenges things like the death penalty and the gun culture and other things in ways that you might hate or you might enjoy. But at the very least, it's going to make you think. And that's why it's good to even interact with him, whether you agree with him or not. Well, and the other thing that I appreciate about him, and I was telling a friend about Scott Sauls yesterday and one of the one of the ways I just think that he like sort of straddles the line really wonderfully. I think Shane actually does that too. Cause I've seen him really take heat from the right and the left yes. conservative and progressive. Like he's hard to peg down. And just to kind of segue from the last segment, when I was in India, actually I was reading his book, irresistible revolution. Oh and uh, I was reading about his experience with, with mother Teresa while I was at mother Teresa's grave. That's like, so I have a, the strange sort of like affinity for, cause he came and did some stuff with our, with our school when I was at Judson. So that was well before the book. And either way, I'm just going to read it. It's not that long. It's not a Sojourners. 
And uh, again, the opinions listed in this article do not necessarily reflect those of Brian and I or the station or the show. <laughs> but I'm going to read it and uh, we'll get some reactions. So here we go. Uh, this year has been difficult beyond description for so many people. While the COVID-19 pandemic has understandably occupied front page uh, front pages across this country and around the globe for much of the past six months, another destructive wave continues to fester, creating so much pain and grief, our national plague of gun violence, which claims 100 lives a day. Together, the two crises have become a toxic combination. Gun violence was a national health crisis long before COVID-19 hit us, is still a crisis amid the pandemic, and unless we take action, will remain a crisis long after. As we grieve the loss of life each day from COVID-19, we must continue with renewed urgency to save the preventable lives of the 38,000 people killed each year by guns. Not every home is a safe place to weather this coronavirus storm. Domestic violence is believed to be on the rise as people are confined in their homes and not working. We know that the presence of gun of, of a gun makes domestic violence more deadly, and this pandemic is no exception. A gun in the home makes it five times more likely that an abused woman will become a victim of domestic homicide. Fear from the pandemic and panic around the around the racial justice awakening have created a record wave in gun sales with nearly two million guns purchased in March. We've seen armed militia groups marching on capitals and gun deaths increasing at 200 to 300 percent in some U.S. cities this year. We are seeing one tragedy after another, most recently in a terrible shooting at a Chicago funeral that left more than a dozen people critically wounded, a depressing, familiar sight in an otherwise unprecedented year. In this continuing crisis, the current lack of regulations on who can purchase a firearm is irresponsible, even fatal. Our country needs our prayers and our actions. God doesn't change laws. We do. And it is time for us to face up to both the spiritual and political crisis in our country and make some changes. Just as the U.S. is leading the world in COVID-19 deaths, we're also leading the world in gun deaths, with eight out of every 10 gun deaths in the industrialized world happening right here in the U.S. This is tragic and unacceptable. Earlier this year, I was asked to join an interfaith partnership with every town to mobilize uh, people in pursuit of gun safety during the upcoming elections, faith leaders and religious communities will be working to emphasize the importance of gun safety for candidates of all parties. Uh, com- com- oh, boy. Common sense gun regulations. <laughs> I, I really made that one harder on myself than I needed to. I felt like it should have been two words. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. Common sense, common sense gun regulations are supported by majorities of both parties and a majority of gun owners. I'm reminded that the Bible says that Jesus wept over Jerusalem because they didn't know uh, what would lead them to peace. Without a doubt, Jesus is weeping over America right now. So let us resolve to work together, people of all faiths and no faith in particular, to stand on the side of life and love and reject the fear that prompts the frenzied purchase of firearms during a pandemic. May we reject the strange theology that says we don't need masks to protect us, but we do need guns. Let us tear down our idols, those things that we treat as if they have supernatural power and to which we attribute godlike power, even though they're not godly at all. Just as scripture warns us not to put our trust in chariots or horses, let us refuse to put our trust in our guns and weaponry, but in God alone. Let us live into the vision of the ancient prophets where we beat our swords into plowshares, or as I like to say, beat our guns into garden tools. The faith community has seen firsthand the devastating effects of gun violence in places of worship. Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, Mother Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina, First Baptist Church in Sutherland Springs, Texas, and so many others. 
As followers of Christ, we must work to end the violence that threatens worshipers and congregations, abuse victims at home, and our children in their schools. Gun safety is a life or death issue we cannot ignore. Mm-hmm. Brian Fromm, we have a couple of minutes left. Yeah. What do you think? I think I look forward to the Facebook conversation that's going to happen from this one. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. You're welcome. So I have shared on this show before that I did not grow up in a gun culture. Yeah, like I never – I to this day, I've shot a gun one time in my life. And right. uh, so I don't – that is not part of me. I get the Second Amendment. I, I understand the reasoning behind all. I get it. Uh, but I don't understand guns, and I do understand that in my in my mind uh, that that there is this giddiness to a gun culture within our within our greater culture, and it, it permeates in the church as well. That I don't I don't get, and and I don't know how else to put it. I just know that uh, that every time I see a school shooting happen, or every time you read the stuff about Chicago or this or that. Uh, and I know there's going to be people screaming at me on the radio, like, well, here's why, you know, here's what we can do. Uh, every time I see those, one of the thoughts that honestly goes through my head is, why do we have so many high powered guns out there that can cause so many problems? Like we've, we, we got to be able to do something. And he even says here, people on both sides of the aisle want uh, gun uh, regulations that make sense. Nobody wants the wild west. Uh, and so, yeah, when I see the armed militia on both sides of the aisle walking around in these protests right now, it terrifies me. Like when I see that, like what's going on? And so that's where I come from. I'm, I'm interested in our last minute where you come from. But I just gun gun culture is not part of my culture growing up. And so when I look at it, I just quite frankly don't always get it. So what do you think about I mean, he he, uh, he doesn't allude. He outright states like, yeah, um, the majority of people political leaders and gunners on both sides actually are for some kind of reform. Like, what do you, what do you think is going on there? I think that's true. I think they disagree on the reforms that there are. Um, I think probably generally speaking, this is painting with a broad brush. People on the right side of the aisle on the Republican side, think that the Democrats just want to take their guns away, that that's the reform. Uh, And so they become more defensive about guns. So I, but I would think, Man, when you see all these things going on in our country, I would think that most reasonable people go, hey, yeah, we do need some sort of reform. Let's let's debate and argue about what exactly that reform is, as opposed to every time screaming, they're trying to take our guns. Uh, right. it, it just and it's always struck me as odd for the Christ follower to be so tied to their guns. And I know I'm, you know, that's what Shane Claiborne says here as well. It, it just always strikes me as odd. And I've had many friends get mad at me for saying that. Uh, but it's it just strikes me as as odd. Well, if that wasn't controversial enough, Brian, coming up next, Boston University professor is urged to resign for calling Amy Coney Barrett a white colonizer who is using her two adopted Haitian children as quote props. That's coming up next year on the Common Good on AM eleven sixty. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with the right Reverend Brian Fromm. Hello and good day to you. In case I don't see you, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. Can you name that movie, Brian? Good afternoon, good evening, good night. No, I cannot. Just take a, just a wild guess. Any, any guess is fair game. Good afternoon, good evening, good night. It sounds like something that would be from Anchorman, but I've seen Anchorman so many times and I don't remember it, so I don't think it is. <laughs> well, that's not really a guess then. Oh, but it, that's my guess. Oh, your guess, even though you know it's not. Okay. It's from The Truman Show. Oh, I have seen The Truman Show. All right. Yes. I knew it. 
And faith, to- faith in you restored. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you're, you're very welcome. Uh, yeah, he says it. I forget where. I can like picture him saying it into the camera. Either way, Brian, real quickly, have you seen Social Dilemma yet? Not yet. It's still on the All docket, right. though. It's coming. I believe. Where is this docket? What is the it's mental? What is it's the mental? Do- oh, the mental docket. <laughs> yes. faith, faith in you revoked again. Um, <laughs> here we go. This is actually something. So we have a uh, a think tank on Facebook where we have some friends, and I try to you know really reach out to people who are right and left, conservative and progressive, people of faith, and maybe people who you know have walked away or never. Never were part of a faith community. And uh, our very own Marcus Brown actually sort of tipped me off to this story. And you know what? That's all I'm going to say. Why don't why don't you get us into the story a little bit and, and then we'll unpack it? Yeah, this story is wild. It says a Boston University professor is being urged to resign after saying Supreme Court nominee Judge Amy Coney Barrett was race was a racist, quote, white colonizer for adopting two black children from Haiti and using them as, quote, props. Uh, The charge was leveled at Judge Barrett, a devout Catholic who has five biological and two adopted children, on Saturday by Ibram X. uh, Condi, a College of Arts and Sciences tenured professor of history and the director and founder of Boston University Center for Anti-Racist Research. He wrote on Twitter, some white colonizers adopted black children. They civilized, and there are lots of quotes in here, but they civilized these savage children in the superior ways of white people while using them as props in their lifelong pictures of denial, while cutting the biological parents of these children out of the picture of humanity. Kendi, the author of three number one New York Times bestsellers. That's an important point here. This is no small guy here, uh, including how to be an anti-racist, was responding to a tweet that included a picture of Barrett's sister holding children who were not adopted by the judge. Kendi describes himself on his website as a hardcore anti-racist, and a softcore vegan and <laughs> married his wife, oh. a pediatric emer- emergency physician, and they have a daughter together. And so it's going to then you can see it on our Facebook page. Lots of replies to his tweet and all this stuff. And he went on to add, in all fairness, his response was uh, whether this is Barrett or not is not the point. It is a belief too many white people have. If they have or adopt a child of color, then they can't be racist. I'm challenging the idea that white parents of kids of color are inherently not racist and the bots completely changed what I'm saying to white parents of kids of color are inherently racist. Uh, And so then again, it goes into all this stuff. So this is just obviously Amy Coney Barrett is in the news right now uh, as the Supreme Court uh, nominee. As it said, she has five biological children and then two children that they adopted from Haiti. And so uh, I truthfully was surprised to see anybody maybe maybe it's just the world i live and we live in like kind of our bubble uh, i was surprised to see anybody call this anything then man that's great that they adopted two kids uh and that they've got that sort of family and uh man uh i, I didn't expect her family structure to be something that people were pointing at but there's different aspects of her family structure that in fact people have been trying to call into question about whether it's how many kids you have or adopting kids from Haiti. Uh, I think he's super off base here. Uh, And he did start to walk some of it back, but uh, a lot of the responses he got were uh, uh, agreed with me there that you're pretty off base on this one. So what do you think about when you read this, when Marcus first sent it to you or when you read it now? I mean, the first thing that stands out to me is that you were, you were surprised. I find that, 
surprising, to be honest. Tell me why, because I I agree with you on some level, but I honestly I was surprised. I was like, oh, that's the angle. That's one of the attack lines. I didn't I didn't see that coming. Oh, yeah, it's it's no um, no deeper conviction. I'm just not surprised by anything anymore. So I'm of the conviction now if there's something, especially when someone's, you know, in the public eye. If there's anything, somebody's going to find some reason to go after it. So, yeah, it it uh, it didn't it wasn't like shock when I saw it. It was sort of I mean, I'm, I'm with you. I'm like, I don't. Yeah, I don't agree with that at all. I when he says whether this is bared or not is not the point. I would maybe say well, it's a little bit the point, <laughs> <Yeah>. I guess. <laughs> yeah. That's the that's the subject of the accusation. You can't like if you want it. And again, there's like six other discussions that we could be having about this because if the point was his next line, it is a belief too many white people have. If they have or adopt a child of color, then they can't be racist. If that you could just say that, then like, go ahead and make that. Cause I, I agree with that. Like, yeah, just cause you've, it's the, it's not too different from someone saying, I can't be racist. I have a black friend right. like, mm, that, <laughs> that doesn't hold water. So I think that there's, there's certainly an interesting discussion along that line of thinking like, Hey, you don't, it doesn't let you off the hook or it doesn't, it doesn't uh, assume anything if you've adopted someone or you live in a certain neighborhood or like, Oh, I have a black friend, any of those things like that's let's do the harder work of figuring out, you know, what's really going on in our heart. But to couch it though, in uh, the kind of accusation that initially set off this firestorm, which again is my other point is that sometimes the goal though, like for someone to make a level headed observation about something that's, you know, a little bit controversial that doesn't make headlines, but you you go you go ahead and make an accusation towards someone who's a prominent public figure. Now we're talking some some ups in the in the shares. You know what I mean? Yep. And it bums me out sometimes that that's incentivized because I think it sometimes I think that you know in his follow up tweet where it, you know he mentions he's walking it back. Some might say no, oh, he's not walking it back. There really were bots that kind of twisted his words. I would have rather had that discussion. I think that's an interesting one, but to couch it in a way that is like. I don't know, making making an accusation that to me doesn't seem to have a lot of teeth. That's yeah. that's problematic. Yeah, you could disagree with Amy Coney Barrett all you want uh, about her policies and what kind of justice she will be. You can disagree with what the Republicans have done to get her to the point of nomination. All of those things are fair. But I, I personally and hopefully I think most people would agree her and her husband should be applauded. Uh, for adopting these children and giving them a home to live in, and uh, her her kids are old enough. Like they they've spoken about the love that they have that they have felt in this home, uh, and to be part of this family. Like I I don't I don't see the the necess- and she and the the interesting thing that you see in this article is he's not the only one. There was a Democratic strategist who tweeted the same, and another person. And you're just like, man, what's going on here? Uh, right. They should be applauded. You could disagree again with her politically. You could disagree with that whether she should be on the Supreme Court or not. Uh, but I'm going to stand up and applaud her and her husband for taking this step uh, and showing uh, kids uh, that they didn't need to adopt in their family this sort of love. I'm I'm going to applaud that, and and I think most people out there listening would do the same. And and just a quick plug to you. So my buddy Jason started an organization called Love Moves Us, and it's all about uh, helping come alongside adoptive families and helping them right. lead and serve and manage and raise well. And that's right here in Chicagoland. So Love Moves Us. Check them out. Jason uh, is doing really, really good work in that department. Okay, so that's, that's about three segments of fairly controversial subject matter. I'm going to end it maybe less controversially. Ten ways – 
to overcome spiritual weariness. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hi, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good for the final time today. But fret not, we are back tomorrow and every weekday from 4 to 6 p.m. Central Standard Time. Brian, it's also, I'll save this one for last, National Homemade Cookie Day. Oh, nice. I knew I knew you'd be okay. amped. Uh, best cookie, go. Like best kind of cookie. E- like yeah, perfect. right. Okay. Uh, so I. Do you know what I love? I love store bought Chips Ahoy chocolate chip cookies. Love them. Uh, I wish I could say I was surprised by the answer. <laughs> How would you answer the question? How is how is store bought anything your favorite? Cookie. I love Chips Ahoy cookies. I just more, do. More than like when grandma made them or when, uh, my no? Gra- my grandma's cookies weren't real good. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> Yikes, a daisy, Brian, but you're going to have to do, clean up there. But remember, I did tell you, and this was one of the many things in these conversations where that you got mad at me, whether it was not liking avocados or whatever okay. else. But Say I got mad. That's a, that's a bit disappointed much. Disappointed. That's something. a bit yep, far. Yep. <laughs> well, I, we did learn that one of the ways that you and my wife agree and uh, is that I enjoy almost burnt cookie, chocolate chip cookies, like really oh, yeah. crispy. And no, that, so, you're right. That was mad. That was actual anger. You're yeah. Right. And so that if, if someone were to make me chocolate chip cookies, like if you made Ian a batch that was, you know, gooey in this, if you could leave that second batch in for some extra time, uh, I'd appreciate that. Yeah, like an extra hour and then send them to Brian. <laughs> I don't be. like them burned. I like them crispy. I Also, unpopular opinion, though, while we're talking about unpopular takes on cookies, I love oatmeal raisin cookies. I do, too. Lo- love them. Oh, I my. I do, too. We yes. also, this is not at all what we're talking about, but why not? My uh, my mom, one of my mom's greatest recipes, we call them oatmeal butterscotchies. They're not really cookies. They're more squares. They sound good. But, well, they're phenomenal, but they look real gross, which was perfect for us. Because when we would do potlucks or family gatherings, you know, when there's yes, a full yes, spread, yes. people skipped right over them because they didn't look all that appealing. And then we would just wharf them all. It was like the Simpkins trick. Like, hey, I don't no need to look at these. These are gross. These probably went bad. You guys go ahead and get your chocolate chip cookies while we eat our uh, oatmeal butterscotches. All right. I've wasted enough time. Why don't we uh, why don't we get into this? Nice. Butterscotches. Yes, sir. This from uh, churchleaders.com. Mark Altrogi. Altrogi. <laughs> Keep going. I'm going with uh, Altrogi. That's what I'm going with. Altrogi. All right. I, it's, that's almost like a whole different name. Have you met my friend Altrogi? <laughs> it's anyway. his mark. Altrogi. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where this begins or ends. Um, something that I know that probably a lot of us are feeling, some of us may be more cognizant than others of our feeling of this, but it's 10 ways to overcome spiritual weariness. I want to make sure that we at least hit the 10 I think they're really helpful. But again, if you want to read the full article, that's over on the Facebook page. So why don't you kick us off this list of 10 ways to overcome spiritual weariness? Yeah, he says following Jesus yields a measurable joy, but can also we can also grow weary from day to day, weary in parenting, serving, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and so he wants to give us uh, 10 ways uh, to find fresh strength, joy and motivation in Christ. All right. So number one, come to Jesus for rest. Come to me, he says, all who labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. Come to Jesus for rest. 
This next one, I'm like kind of on a big kick with. Confess your weariness to the Lord. I've been doing this a whole lot more than I have, maybe ever. Uh, quoting from Psalm 6, I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. That's just one of, there's so many verses throughout the pages of scripture of men and women of God, like just letting God know which he already knows. But I was, it's amazing to me how I've not really ever paid attention to how often that shows up where they're like, hey, I'm super tired. <laughs> I'm really weary. And yet in my own life, like very rarely would that be included in my, my prayer life. And I've actually been really encouraged by that discipline. Yeah. Next one is ask Jesus to restore and revive you. Uh, and he quotes Psalm chapter 23, the Lord is my shepherd. He restores my soul. So, so many of these, uh, they just make sense. They're easy. And I think that's a little bit of the point. So ask Jesus to restore and revive you. Yeah, this next one is remind yourself that Jesus won't forget your labors for him. Hebrews 6.10, for God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. Mm. Next one, ask Jesus for joy. John chapter 16, verse 24, until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. That's good, man. Ask Jesus for strength is next. Then he quotes from Isaiah 40. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. He understands. He is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and to him who has no might. He increases strength. Even you shall faint and be weary and young men shall fall exhausted. Hmm. The next one, ask Jesus for his own affection for people. Philippians chapter one, verse eight, for God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. This next one is easier said than done. Remind yourself that your work for the Lord is not in vain. Mm -hmm. First Corinthians 15, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. The next one comes out of Galatians chapter six, verse nine. Remind yourself that someday you will reap rewards. Uh, Galatians 6, 9 says, and let us not grow weary of doing good for in due season, we will reap if we didn't, if we do not give up. That's good. Next one is out of Matthew 25. It says, remind yourself of God's future commendation. Mm -hmm. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. I love that phrase, by the way, they enter into the joy of your master yeah. is the one thing that I feel like we often forget when we talk about being diligent in whatever stage of life God has placed us in. Like, I feel like there's often this sense of like duty, like you should be diligent or you should persevere, which is certainly part of it. But like, we've been working on a series in uh, the sermon on the Mount and Jesus gives these three examples about like, not uh, praying to get the recognition of others, not fasting to get the recognition of others and not giving to get the recognition of others. But then he, at each of those illustrations, he says, um, but God who sees them in secret will reward you. Just like, oh, that's yeah. in, isn't that interesting? It usually is like, no, don't do it for the reward. Do it because it's the right thing to do, because that's what a Christian does. No, the, there's actually a reward in it for us. And I think the reward actually is intimacy with God. And we I think the less that we actually do these things, you know, so that other people will like us or so that we get clicks and likes or whatever. And the more that we actually can like rest in who God made us to be kind of what we were talking about the first hour about our identity in Christ. I think that actually is the reward. And I, I don't know, man, I, something about this season, I just found that truth really, uh, really powerful. Yeah. And I, I really appreciate the simplicity of the list where it's like, Hey, ask for joy, ask for strength. Like 
you know, a lot of times we'll be more, oh, I'm just tired. And, and the next step is not, Lord, give me strength. Lord, give me. And that sounds so basic, but how many times is that not uh, just part of our prayer life and part of right. our, our asking? And so that article is from Mark Altrogi. And uh, man, his bio, this is fascinating to me. He's the author of many well-known worship songs, such as I Stand in Awe. That song was huge when I was in college. I'm like the right. uh, worship. There you go, Mark. Okay. <laughs> well, either way, we hope that it's encouraging to you. And I know that uh, we covered a lot of ground yeah. today. Some of it controversial, some of it downright discouraging. But I've been trying to be more mindful to end the show with something that is either filled with hope or encouraging or at least really practical. And these were 10 ways to help overcome spiritual weariness. As always, that's on the Facebook page. Which ones really resonate with you? What would you add to the list? What are some ways that you've maybe overcome spiritual weariness? We would love for that to be a place where we can kind of share what each other is learning in this season. And that wraps up today's show. Thanks for joining us today. For Brian Fromm, my name is Ian Simpkins. And you, my friends, have been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.